Well, good morning, church. If you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 6. Uh, we'll also, we'll have the scripture up on the screen as well, but Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 14, is where we're going to be this morning as we continue preaching through the book of Mark. Uh, thank you to all of you who were here last week for our celebration service as we celebrated our, our one-year anniversary, one year of, of gathering together as a new church plant here in Franklin. Uh, it was good to look back and just remember just how good and how faithful and how gracious God has been to us this past year. Uh, we kind of looked and cast some vision for the future. Uh, we're excited for what God has for us in the future, but we're also enjoying today. We're enjoying what God has given us today. And so it was great to celebrate by remembering, again, why we exist as a church, why we exist as a new church plant here in Franklin, because we believe that we exist by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to behold God to build up the body of Christ, and to bless the city and the world. That is why we believe we exist here in Franklin, why God's gathered this new group of people, this new family, this new church plant here in Franklin. Uh, but this morning, we are jumping back into our series uh, in Mark. We're preaching verse by verse through the book of Mark, and sometimes we get to passages that I'll be honest that I'm excited to preach to you about, and sometimes we get to passages like this where it's just it's kind, of, it's kind of odd, right? It's not what I would pick, but there's something such good and healthy when you preach through books of the Bible because you address things that you wouldn't naturally go to and address. And so I'm excited for what God has for us uh, in this passage. Let me catch you up kind of where we've been at in Mark. So two weeks ago, we were preaching in Mark, and we were in Mark 6, verses 7 through 13, and that's when Jesus starts sending out the 12 apostles. And, and we looked at how he sent them out. We looked at how he sent them out in community. He sent them out two by two. He gave them one another, right? He sends them out in community. He sent them out as ambassadors. He, 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 he authorized them to be representatives of him to the world. And then we see that he sent them out totally dependent upon God. He said, don't take a bag. Don't take any money. Don't take provisions. Just completely trust that God will provide for you. And then he sent them out ready to be received by some, but to also be rejected by others as well. He said, some people are going to welcome you in. They're going to receive this, this gospel message. Their, their, their hearts are going to turn to God. They're going to receive and welcome you in. But there are going to be others that reject you, that hear God's word, that hear the good news, and they're going to reject it. And now we arrive in verse 14, okay? So we arrive to our verse today, and it's almost like Mark is saying, hey, so speaking of rejection, speaking of rejection, speaking of great messengers of God who were not received or welcomed in, let me, let me fill you in on what's been happening with John the Baptist, all right? You know that, that camel skin wearing guy who's out in the wilderness, like eating locusts and honey, uh, who's just the wild man in the wilderness? You remember John the Baptist? We, we learned about him at the beginning of the book of Mark. Yeah, let's, let's talk about him, speaking of rejection, okay? So that's, that's how we kind of get to where we're at in verse 14. So let's go, Mark 6, verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work. Okay, let's stop there for a second and let's kind of set the scene, okay? We've got to first be introduced to the characters. So the first character we see is we see King Herod, okay? And let me say that again. I'm going to say King Herod. 
If you're listening to the audio, I used some air quotes around king, okay? King Herod, okay? Because listen, he wasn't really a king. You see, he is the son of Herod the Great, and Herod the Great was the ruler when Jesus was born. So around Christmas time, when we read the nativity story and all that, that was Herod the Great, his father. Uh, But this is his son, and and so it's one of Herod the Great's sons, uh, who Matthew also refers to as Herod the Tetrarch, the Tetrarch. Because you see, this Herod uh, only rules one-fourth of the area that his father, Herod the Great, had ruled. Okay, So one-fourth, he was called Herod the Tetrarch. And he's also not really a king, because remember, this, this land is under Roman rule. The Roman Empire is under control. And, and according to some historians, this Herod actually requested from Rome that he be called king, and they denied his request. Like, I don't know what, what kind of like paperwork he had to go through to like request the title change, but Rome saw it and they're like, yeah, no, request denied. You are not king, okay? So he was more like a, a governor. He was kind of ruling one-fourth of his, his father's uh, uh, previous area, but it was all under the Roman uh, Empire, Roman rule. So when Mark is writing this, he's being a little sarcastic, okay? Because Herod's not a king. Everyone knows He's not a king, but he thought of himself as a king. (laughs) And Mark calls him King Herod, okay? King Herod. So here we have, here we have our first character, King Herod, self-proclaimed fake King Herod, who who is hearing about the greatness of Jesus, who we know is ultimately the true king, right? He's hearing about Jesus. He's hearing about the great things that Jesus is doing. And he's also hearing about who some people think that Jesus might be. Jesus, some people were saying that John, it's John the Baptist raised back to life. And you guys remember John the Baptist, right? We, we introed him a little bit at the book, the start of the book of Mark, but he was the great messenger sent ahead of Jesus to prepare the way, to call people to repentance, to turn back to God, and he was baptizing them as well, hence the name John the Baptist, okay? And so John the Baptist, he also, he got a pretty big compliment from Jesus. Jesus had once said that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Like among human beings, no one greater than John. That's a pretty big compliment, okay? That's a pretty big compliment from Jesus. Okay, so look, look at the scene that has been set. King Herod, who thinks he is great, but isn't really that great. He's kind of faking greatness, right? He hears about Jesus. He hears about true greatness. He hears about the greatness of God. And in hearing about the greatness of God, he remembers what he did to one of God's great messengers. That's our scene, okay? Keep keep that scene in your head for a second while I share with you uh, another story that I heard recently, okay? Back in the early 2000s, there was a man named Sean Greenhall who was caught and arrested for running one of the longest art forgery scams ever, Okay, what he would do is he would pull up to, to museums all around the world. He would pull up in kind of a rundown, uh, 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 kind of beater car, like didn't, didn't look like he was very wealthy at all. He would dress just in kind of raggedy clothes, and he would meander into these museums, and he would claim to have found old ancient artifacts and pieces of art, like he claimed he would find them in his, in his parents' garage or, or his grandparents' closets, or he would claim to have these really significant ancient artifacts, and he would present them to the, museum, the museums. 
And the museums, they would inspect them and they would look at them. And once they passed the inspection, they would purchase the art from him. And over 20 years, this guy made over $20 million selling to museums these pieces of art that he had claimed to have found. However, the true story is that he was actually just making these in his parents' shed behind their house, okay? For 20 years, made millions of dollars from fake paintings, sculptures, and artifacts. They were all counterfeit. They were pieces of art that looked like they would have great value. Like they looked great. They looked legit. They looked like there was value in them, but they were actually just fakes. They were counterfeits. They didn't have the value they appeared to have. And I guess this is a pretty big problem in the art world. Experts say that uh, a counterfeit art is everywhere. They say that as much as half the artwork on the international market right now could be fake. Up to half. As much as half of the artwork. It looks great. It looks value, valuable. But in reality, it's worthless. It's worthless. And the reason that I share that with you this morning is not for you uh, artists to have some ideas about how you can make money actually being an artist. That's not, that's not the, the point of that. But I would like a cut if that ends up happening. Uh, but instead, I, no, I want you to see and understand that the world has a lot of fake pictures of what greatness looks like. They have a lot of fake pictures of what greatness looks like. The world says, the world says to be great that you have to have control and you have to dominate other people. You have to crush them, right, to gain control over them. The world says to be great, that, that, that you have to do whatever you can to collect the most money that you can collect. The world says to be great that you must have the best physical appearance possible. The world says to be great that you have to have the most friends. You have to be the most popular. You have to have the most accomplishments. You have to have the best resume. And listen, church, I do not want us to spend our lives working for what the world tells us greatness looks like, only in the end to find that that picture was a fake. It was a counterfeit. It didn't have the value we thought it did. Because let me tell you, there is many a person that lays on their deathbed with nothing but regret because they spent their lives purchasing a fake picture of greatness and they missed out on the real thing. They missed out. And so we need to look to Jesus and we need to look to his word to see what true greatness looks like. We need to have the Ask the Spirit to, to enlighten us and, and help us deconstruct this counterfeit greatness that the world tells us to pursue. We have to see what true greatness looks like. Because look, look, King Herod at first, in this story, you would think that like he has the appearance of greatness, right? I mean, he's sort of a king. He's at least a governor. He's in control of, of some things. He can give orders. People obey. He dresses nicely. He lives in a big house. He has large parties. And we look at that and we think, man, like that's, that's where it's at, right? That's, that's success. That's true greatness. But church, nothing could be further from the truth. 
That is counterfeit greatness. That is fake greatness. That has the appearance of greatness, but it is actually worthless in the end. Herod is fake art. I don't know if anyone has ever called Herod fake art. We could call him far worse, but today we're going to do it, okay? Herod is fake art. John the Baptist, on the other hand, we look at him. I mean, he wears camel skin clothing, which I'm pretty sure wasn't even in style back in that day, okay? He, he eats locusts. He eats wild honey. He calls people to repentance. I mean, he's calling people out, even if they're, they're, they're in charge of the whole region, right? And he ends up with his head on a platter. And Jesus says, none is greater than John. Like, really? I don't know about you, but like at first I'm like, ah, I, I wish like true greatness was, no, like the, the nice clothes, nice friends, nice parties. Like that's, that's what I want to go after. Like, how, how is that true greatness, what we see in the life of John the Baptist? Like, if, if that's true greatness, if that's where it leads, I'm not sure I want any part of that. And so this morning, we have to deconstruct this counterfeit greatness that is so ingrained in our minds of what it means to be successful and what it means to be great. And we're going to have to continually look to John the Baptist and then ultimately look to Jesus and ask the Spirit to open our eyes to see what true greatness looks like. C.J. Mahaney, I'm going to share a quote with you guys, which I think we'll have up on the screen. Um, C.J. Mahaney in his book, Humility, he gives this definition of greatness. And it's kind of, it's kind of long and wordy, but, but try to hang with me on this, okay? This is what he says. He says, as sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency to pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. There's a lot of self in there. Contrast that with the pursuit of true greatness as biblically defined, serving others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is true greatness as the Savior defined it. So he's saying there, he's saying that our world's idea of pursuing greatness, it looks a lot like Herod, okay? It looks a lot like people motivated by self-interest. It looks a lot like people motivated by self-indulgence, working for a false sense of self-sufficiency to pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. That is counterfeit greatness. That is fake greatness. Contrast that to true greatness, serving others for the glory of God. Serving others for the glory of God. That is true greatness. Look back with me at Mark 6, verse 14. We're going to read a few more verses here. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. 
For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, the name and fame of Jesus was spreading and people had a few thoughts about who this Jesus might be, okay? Some thought he was Elijah because it was a popular belief in Judaism since God just took Elijah up to heaven, like didn't, Elijah didn't really die, he was just kind of taken up to heaven. The belief was that one day he would return in the last days. And even in the book of Malachi, uh, uh, he, he states some of these things, Elijah coming in the last days. So some said Jesus was Elijah. Others said that he was a prophet, like one of the prophets back in the day that God had sent, what we think of in the Old Testament, all right, those prophets. Some were saying, no, Jesus is just another prophet. And then others said he was John the Baptist who had been raised from the dead. And then Mark kind of then gives a flashback to fill us in on what happened to John the Baptist. Because I know it seems a little odd at first. We're reading, okay, Jesus could be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Like, wait a minute, John died? Like, what happened to John? Why, are we, why does he have to be raised back to the dead? So, so Mark's then going to give us a flashback and say, okay, here is what happened to John the Baptist. So Mark intros the story with Herod hearing about Jesus. Herod hearing about what people are thinking and saying who Jesus is. Herod is convinced he is John the Baptist raised to life. And now Mark says, okay, let me, let's go back, flashback, all right? Go with me now back in time. We're going to flashback to what happened to John the Baptist. And so the story starts with Herod divorcing his wife and then taking the wife of his brother and marrying her. John the Baptist calls him out on it. He says, hey man, that is, that is against God's law. That is adultery. That is sin. John knows that he is supposed to call people to repentance and he doesn't care if they are powerful or powerless, if they're rich or they're poor. John the Baptist is going to call people to repentance. So he, he calls Herod out on this, that this was breaking God's law. And so he makes sure Herod knows that, that this was a sin for him to do what he did. This makes Herod's new wife uh, very upset and she holds a grudge against John. John. She wants to kill him immediately, but Herod says no. Like, I, I'm sort of afraid of him. He kind of perplexes and confuses me. I'm not sure about his clothing. I'm not sure about what he's talking about. Like, and, and Herod is also fearful of the people because he knows the people think of John the Baptist as a prophet. So he says, I'm not going to kill him. I'm just going to put him in prison. That will silence him. It will appease my wife, but I'm, I'm, I don't want to kill him at this point. So John has been in prison for a time, okay? Um, Herod refuses to kill him in order to appease his wife, who, which, by the way, seems like a lovely lady. Uh, uh, he, he then instead he just puts him in prison for a time. So John's in prison, and then comes Herod's birthday. Now, Herod throws a party for himself, which is a classy thing to do. Uh, and, and he then has his niece slash stepdaughter, all right, come and dance for him and his guests. And this wasn't like, this wasn't like tap dancing. This wasn't like ballet dancing, all right? We can deduce from the context and the culture that this was provocative dancing, okay? Um, um, in, in reading this far, we can sense that the Herod family has some issues, all right? It, 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 they've got some issues going on. If, if they lived in 2018, they'd probably have their own reality TV show, uh, but they were just a little ahead of their time. They were ahead of their time. They've got some issues in the Herod household. So Herod's niece, now stepdaughter, dances. He's so pleased that he asks her what she wants. He offers her up to half the kingdom. She goes out to her mom and is like, what should I ask for? 
like maybe a new dress, maybe new shoes, maybe full college tuition. I'm elaborating some. I'm just speculating. The mom says, no, ask for the head of John the Baptist, right? Again, a lovely, a lovely lady. Uh, she asked for John's head. Herod immediately regrets making her such a generous offer, but he feels like he has to save face in front of his guests and not go back on his word. Somehow in his twisted thinking, he views taking back an offer as being worse than, than killing an innocent man. But nevertheless, he orders for John to be beheaded, and they bring the girl John's head on a platter. And so the main takeaway from the passage this morning is that women will make men do some crazy things. Amen. Peace be with you. All right. No, I'm just kidding. We can't stop there. No, for goodness sake, we can't stop there. Okay. I'm just kidding. That might sometimes be true, but that is not the main point of the passage this morning, okay? But that's the sum of the story, all right? We've gone through the passage. That's the sum of the story. And so when, Jer when, when, excuse me, when Herod hears about Jesus and who people are saying that he is, he's like, oh, it's John. I know it's John the Baptist. Man, I've, been, I've had this guilty conscience. I know he's coming for me. I know that's John the Baptist raised back to life, right? I mean... <laughs> He, he right away, oh, oh, could it be a prophet? Could it be Elijah? Herod's like, nope, I know. It's John the Baptist. Yep, he's coming for me. He's coming. Judgment day is here. But in all seriousness, okay, for, for Herod to respond this way, imagine the guilt that Herod had been living with. I mean, just imagine the guilty conscience that Herod had been living with all this time, that at the first sound of, of miracles happening, he's, oh, it's got to be John the Baptist. I'm sure he couldn't sleep at night. I'm sure if ever he had a free moment to think about what he did, I'm sure he regretted that whole scenario, regretted killing John. Herod knows that his lustful self-indulgence over Herodias and then eventually her daughter, he knows that those sins had led him to killing an innocent man. And his conscience was now being tormented by guilt. By guilt. He was controlled by his passions, and as a result, a guilty conscience now consumed him. Church, this is what the pursuit of counterfeit greatness produces. This is what a pursuit of fake greatness leads to. Like, like when we see counterfeit greatness, we, we think that it will produce a great life. Herod sees his brother's wife, he's attracted to her, and he assumes that indulging himself will lead to a great life. Like, he has to follow his heart, right? That's what the world says, follow your heart. Like, isn't this what the world tells us? If you want to do something, do it. If you think it'll make you happy, go for it. Indulge yourself. Feed the appetite of your passions and desires and impulses, and you will have a great life. The world says life would be greater if you were married to this other person instead of your own spouse. Life would be greater if you had just this much more money. Life would be greater if you just had this specific car or just this specific house. 
Like, indulge yourself and you will have a great life. But church, it's not true. It's not true. The world has painted you a fake picture of greatness. That's counterfeit greatness. Because you go and find the most self-indulgent people, and trust me, you will not find the happiest people. You won't. You go find the people that are most self-indulgent, you won't find the greatest marriages there. You won't find the greatest lives being lived, but instead you will find miserable people full of guilty consciences. You see, church, we were not designed to live self-indulgent lives tormented by guilty consciences. We were not designed to live that way. Mark chapter 10, verses 43 and 45 says this. Jesus said, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's true greatness. Serving others for the glory of God. Counter, counterfeit greatness, it looks like the real thing. It looks like it would lead to a great life, but in the end, it's worthless and it's fake. Counterfeit greatness says, indulge yourself and you will be happy, but all it's going to lead to is guilty consciences. But Jesus enables us to live the way we were meant to live. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be like your slave, must be last. He says, true greatness is serving others, not indulging self. And then he doesn't just tell us what to do, but he shows us what to do, right? Mark 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. We want greatness. We want great lives. There's nothing wrong with desiring that. But we've settled for the fake stuff. We've settled for what the world says will lead to a great life. But in Christ, we see what true greatness looks like. And through the cross of Christ, he has taken our guilt and shame. He has freed us from our guilty consciences. And now we are enabled to pursue true greatness instead of the fake stuff. Our sin, our self-indulgence, our pursuit of counterfeit greatness caused us guilt and shame. But now because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he has taken our guilt and shame. And because of Christ, we no longer have to indulge ourselves because we are satisfied by him. 
the solution to our unending appetites of self-indulgence that leads to inevitable guilty consciences. It's not to keep feeding it ourselves, but it is to have our appetite satisfied by Christ. In John 4, 14, Jesus said to the woman at the well, he said, but whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. If you want true greatness, you don't find it where Herod was looking. And it's not where the world would lead you to believe it is. Church, do not be deceived. True greatness is found in Christ alone. Well, what, what else does counterfeit greatness look like? I want you guys to be able to identify it. I want you to be able to inspect these things the world tells you will make your life great. And I want you to understand what is fake and what is true. So what else does counterfeit greatness look like? Look at Mark 6, back in our passage, Mark 6, verse 21. It says, but an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Okay, so Herod throws himself a birthday party, all right? And look who he invites. He invites important people. He invites the rich, the famous, the people with power. He has this great banquet. We can only assume that birthday meatloaf was on the uh, menu. Um, he's trying to impress them. He's trying, uh, you can ask Tim about birthday meatloaf uh, after the service. Uh, he's trying to impress them. He's trying to throw this, this celebration for himself. Even though he isn't really a king, he wants to appear like he's a king. He, he wants the prettiest wife. He wants the nicest clothes. He wants the most powerful of friends surrounding him. Why? Why does King Herod want this? Because you see people who pursue counterfeit greatness, the greatness that Herod is pursuing, they tend to define their worth externally. They tend to define their worth externally. It's that thought process that says, what people think of me and how I am perceived by others determines my worth. Like, I'm worth more if they think I'm king. I'm worth more if they think I'm rich. I'm worth more if they are impressed by what I have and the banquet I can throw. Church, let me ask you personally this, to think about this in the quietness of your heart. Is this the fake painting of greatness that you have bought into as well? That your worth is determined by what others think of you. That we will be of more value if we can appear to other people that we have it all together, right? Do we think sometimes that our worth is determined by, by what people think about us? Like if they think that I'm the, the perfect dad or if they think that you are the perfect mom or if they think that you are a good moral person, like does that affect what you think your actual worth is? Do we think that we will have more worth if we can be viewed as successful so do, do we work hard to get a certain job, even though we might not like that certain job, just so we can appear successful to other people? 
And so we try to make as much money as we can because we learned in the game of Monopoly that the one with the most money at the end wins, right? That's what Monopoly taught us. So we gather as much money as we can so we can, we can have it be surrounded by money so that other people can look at us and be impressed by us and think we are successful and we feel like we have more worth. Then we have others who maybe starve themselves, trying to cut weight. They live at the gym, not necessarily for the desire to be healthy. It's good to desire to be healthy, but they do it for the desire to appear healthy. They, they want to, be, to appear healthier and attractive to others because if people view them as healthy and attractive, then they will have more worth. And this happens to pastors and church leaders too. I won't leave us out of it, right? We can be tempted to just work on our public lives and our public sermons and our public prayers. And we can neglect the health of our lives behind closed doors and our thought life and our private prayer life and devotional life because we can be tempted to think that those don't matter as much as the public stuff when we start to believe that our worth is determined by how you view us as pastors. So we can all be prone to this, to define our worth externally by how people view and perceive us. But church, that's not true greatness. Living like that's not true greatness. That's the fake stuff. That's the counterfeit stuff. John the Baptist, you think he cared what people thought of him? You think he defined his worth externally? Listen, we were not designed to live that way either. It's a miserable life to live that way. Why? Because it's living outside the will of God. And church, some of you really need to hear this this morning. Your worth is not determined by what others think of you. It's not your worth is not determined by what others think of you. Your worth is not determined by how you are perceived by others. Your worth is not determined by your money, your career, your singleness, or your relationship status. Your worth is not determined by your past or future failings. Church, do not be deceived. God has already determined your worth when he created you in his image. Image bearers of God, that is a big deal. That has a lot of value and worth. You don't need anything else to supplement that. And then Christians, those whose faith is in Christ, they have even a greater comfort because not only are we image bearers of a glorious God, but when we receive Christ, we are united with him. And so let me tell you, Christian, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, the comfort to your feelings of unworthiness is understanding your union with Christ. The comfort to your feelings of unworthiness is understanding and embracing your union with Christ. You have been identified with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So don't buy or chase counterfeit greatness. True greatness is found in Christ. And church, you are in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3. 
says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We are blessed in Christ, our union with Christ. Let me share another one, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. In glory. God has blessed us in Christ because of our union with him, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Being united with Christ, it frees us from having to find our worth externally. It frees us to experience true greatness, to be able to serve others for the glory of God. Well, what else does counterfeit greatness look like compared to true greatness? Look back at Mark 6. And after his niece slash stepdaughter asked for John's head, look at Mark 6, verse 26. It says, And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Now, it's not as if King Herod is all that concerned about lying, okay, or taking back his word. Uh, you can't really justify killing an innocent man just because you didn't want to, to take back your word. It's, it's not as if King Herod's moral compass is all of a sudden kicking in and he can't tell a lie, right? Uh, no, it's not that. It's his pride. It's his pride. It's because everyone's around. He's trying to save face in front of everyone that's around him. And in his pride, he does not want to go back on what he said, even if it means taking an innocent life. Because the guests are there, in his pride, he orders the execution of John the Baptist. And it is pride that desires to gain glory for yourself instead of giving glory to God. Okay? Pride is essentially idolatry of the self. It's, it's desiring for yourself to gain glory instead of giving that glory and honor and praise to God. It is elevating yourself above God. It is treasuring yourself more than God. It is glorifying and exalting yourself more than God. But church, listen, the world, the world tries to say to be great. You must seek glory for yourself. That you must elevate yourself. That you must exalt yourself. But church, we weren't designed to live lives of self-exaltation and self-glorification. We weren't designed to live that way. James 4, 6 says, But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You want true greatness? Let me suggest you aren't on the team that God is opposing. 
God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 11, says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And in John the Baptist, don't we get such a good picture of greatness through humility? I mean, he had plenty of opportunities to elevate himself. He initially was growing in, in popularity as he was paving the way for Jesus' ministry. But what did he say? He said, he must increase, I must decrease. And Jesus said there was none greater than John. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The world's going to tell you, no, you need to exalt yourself. You need to glorify yourself. That's how you be great. Jesus says, no, not in my kingdom. You were designed to humble yourself and let me exalt you. So church, let me ask you this. What are you spending your life pursuing? Is it true greatness that we see in the Bible and in the life of, of Jesus and John the Baptist? Or is it counterfeit greatness? Is it the fake greatness that the world tells you will lead to a great life? What are you spending your life on? What are you spending your days buying into? What the world tells you it will lead to greatness or what Jesus tells you will lead to greatness? Are you pursuing self-indulgence and, and self-sufficiency and self-glorification? And are you trying to define your worth externally by seeing how others are viewing and perceiving you? Church, do not be deceived. True greatness is found in Christ. True greatness looks more like John the Baptist than King Herod. And in closing, we also got to understand that true greatness will most likely not be recognized in this world, but it will in the one to come. You remember the verses before our passage started when Jesus was sending out the twelve? He had just got done explaining to his disciples, right, that some would receive them, but others would reject them. And then Mark, in writing his gospel, he cuts to this story, right? Speaking of rejection, let me show you what happened to John the Baptist, the one that Jesus said was the greatest. John the Baptist, who Jesus said there was no one greater in this life on earth, it, his life on earth, it ended with his head on a platter. We look at that and we think, how is that great? Like, if that's where true greatness leads, how is that great? I'm not sure if I want to be a part of that. And, and then we look at what would follow after John the Baptist, right? We would eventually see then Jesus come before Herod and come before Pilate. And we would see Jesus, a, a, the, the truly innocent, righteous man, uh, the, the God-man, right? Two in one, completely innocent and righteous. He would be put to death. And then following Jesus, we would see all the apostles would eventually be martyred as well. And we can look through church history and see that Christians have been persecuted and martyred ever since that John's head ended up on a platter. And today, Christians are the most persecuted group on the planet. And I saw a stat that in 2016 alone, just in one year alone, approximately 90,000 Christians around the globe had been martyred for their faith just in 2016. 90,000 Christians. The world 
doesn't recognize true greatness, and they've tried to silence it by killing it. But here's the wonderful thing about true greatness. Death can't hold it. Amen? Amen. And the resurrection of Jesus secured for us that beautiful truth that physical death is not the end. It's not the end. But as awful as it is that the world tries to persecute and kill true greatness, the Bible says that the future glory does not even compare with that. Like as awful as that seems, like, like we can read this story, and I know I was at times being a little lighthearted about, about the whole story, uh, but, but really think about this. This is a, I mean, John the Baptist, he was martyred here. For, for no reason, just kind of like a silly, like, because he wanted to impress people at a party. I mean, this is an awful story. This is a heavy story. But the Bible says that this persecution, this, this temporary trial, it does not even compare to the future glory. So he, hear these words from Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 18 through 21. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Let me read verse 18 again. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory of that is to be revealed to us. Back in 2004, there's a missionary named Karen Watson, and she counted the cost of pursuing true greatness. She had felt called by God to go to Iraq and to provide some humanitarian effort there, there in 2004, in the name of Jesus. She wanted to go serve the civilians there to take care of their physical needs and to proclaim the goodness of Jesus. And before she went, she left a letter with her pastor out in California that he was only supposed to read in, in, in case, worst case scenario, something happened to her over in Iraq. And so Karen, upon entering Iraq, she started serving civilians. She started taking care of her, their needs. But she was fairly quickly killed for her faith. And her pastor opened the letter and read it. It started out with her saying, you're, you're only reading this if I died. Then she goes on with some gracious words to family and friends, but then I want you to hear with what she concluded with. She concluded with this simple summary of following Christ. She said this. She said, to obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. I'll read it again. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory, my reward. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Church, do not be deceived. True greatness is found in Christ alone. Let's pray.